Hi, how are you doing? Uh, my name is Celine Campbell and back there, Francis, we are both the uh, room managers for the room. So if you need anything, just let us know. There's just a couple of um, housekeeping uh, that I'd like to um, bring to your attention. Just to the back of the room, there's emergency exits. The closest toilets would be just if you go to the closest stairs up the stairs to, it's to the left or the right of your stairs. Um, and the water fountains are just by the stairs as well. Um, coffee break will be immediately after these parallel sessions in the usual spot um, in the arts building. Um, lunch today is going to be in the dining hall, not in the arts building. So just ask a member of um, someone who has this t-shirt and uh, they'll be able to direct you to where lunch is. Finally, um, for those of you who want to do uh, the tour um, uh, as part of the reception um, evening, you just need to go to the registration desk and sign up. So I'd encourage you all to do it. Um, but other than that, I might just hand you over to Lorna. Thank you. Thank you, Celine. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Lorna Dodd. I work at Maynooth University here in Ireland. I'm a member of the local organising committee and I'm also a member of the programme committee. Um, so you're all very welcome. Um, I hope you really enjoyed yesterday and the festivities last night in the Mansion House, those of you who were there. Um, so today's session is going to be about developing for the future research libraries exploring new services. We have four great talks lined up for you. Um, so we're going to start off with Ronan O'Byrne from Solent University in the United Kingdom who's going to talk about curating the dynamic future challenges of a shifting landscape. Ronan. Thank you very much, Lorna, and good morning, everybody. which is Welcome, everybody. And uh, My name is Ronan O'Byrne, um, and I work at Solent, as, as I've been introduced. Um, I'm going to uh, talk to you today about the shifting balance between the relationship that uh, has existed for a very long time between um, researchers and the library. Um, I'm going to take you through and share with you um, the research that I uh, have carried out into this area. And I think that the advances in information technology, shift in modes of knowledge production, and changes in research practice have affected all points of the research life cycle. And I'll be looking at the research life cycle and seeing how that's changed. So the research that I carried out um, between uh, 2014 and 2017, and some of it is still, still continuing, had um, these five aims. The aims are um, relatively broad in scope, um, and I achieved to varying different degrees um, part of these aims. Um, so the first one was to identify the themes associated with the changing research environment. Um, we're all very aware of the changes that are happening. The keynote speaker that we've just been listening to um, certainly identified some of the themes. Um, my research tried to do that in a more formal way. Um, secondly, to explore issues emerging within these themes. Um, fine to, to identify the theme, but what does it actually mean? And third, to develop a conceptual framework, um, some way of understanding how all of this change is, is having an impact, what the what the relationships between the different um, agencies, the different players in the game are. Um, and I'll be showing you that later on. And the fourth aim there was to support, uh, to suggest some possible emerging scenarios. Um, so trying to predict 
and maybe forecast how things might move towards um, different scenarios in the future. That was quite, a, quite an ambitious um, aim, I think. Um, and then finally, to recommend actions for senior leaders and policymakers in the light of the findings. Part of my motivation uh, for looking at this was uh, Christine Borgman's uh, quote here, which uh, really talks about how all of this change is happening and, and how the tensions are emerging within this. Um, and she, she touches on um, you know, authors, libraries and universities are publishers wrestling with trade-offs between traditional forms of publisher-controlled dissemination and author-controlled forms. Um, and I think that that's really at the heart of what we're looking at in this piece of um, research. So my research questions, um, again, uh, quite ambitious. I didn't expect to find and fully answer all of these in a complete and neat way, but this certainly helped me to, to, to frame my thoughts and um, almost um, uh, corral my, my approach into something that was feasible. So again, I'll just go through them quickly. Um, the external environment is disrupting, disrupting and changing the research pro process. I wanted to look at that in more detail. Um, certainly looking at open access and seeing what that was doing as a, as, a, as a disrupting factor, as a driver, if you like. And what might the impact of open access be on those stages of the research life cycle? Um, we're, very, we're very aware of the research life cycle, but the, the question is, is uh, I suppose, in my mind was, is the research life cycle changing, um, or are just aspects of it changing? How deep is that change? How might disruptive changes reshape the library? Is the library going to, um, the academic library, the research uh, support aspect of that is going to be tweaked slightly as it needs um, fundamental changing? And what is the response the library can have to the changes in open access research? And does it need to respond to other changes? And what are the important and pressing issues library leadership needs to address? Uh, this is a typical research lifecycle um, graphic, if you like. It's from the University of Central Florida. Um, and I used this with uh, staff and uh, tried to um, understand how we fit it into this. It's basically one cycle divided into four mini-cycles, if you like, but then but retaining the same cycle. It's quite a good uh, piece, of, um, piece, of, piece of artwork, if you like. The blue bits... Um, if you go to the key at the bottom and you've got one, two, three across, you've got libraries there in blue, that blue circle, and you translate that up to the three, uh, sorry, to the four um, smaller circles, and you see that the library is involved in each one of those, um, but to varying different extents. There are grey um, um, dots as well, which I think is the uh, one, two, three, four, sixth one in, which says not yet supported, um, possibly supported now in, in, in more recent years, but when that was produced, 2013, there were, there were areas, there were blank spaces, if you like. So there was bits that needed to be done as part of what the University of Florida thought, but hadn't moved forward into, into a, 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 so, a, assigning some of those tasks to particular roles. So that, if you like, was a bit of a, a way for me to look at this. So my methodology um, was really to look at the context, to carry out a literature review, to identify themes, as I said in my aims, to, and use a Delphi technique, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a moment, um, and to re-engage them with the li literature and to contextualize this and to synthesize it. So taking the literature, 
seeing if the literature holds water, if you like, by engaging in a Delphi study, by um, in, uh, speaking to lots of people who are stakeholders, and then re-engaging with the literature. That's kind of a plan, an outline plan of what I did, literature review, moving from the left, top left to bottom right, ending up with the conceptual framework. When I looked at the literature, I found that um, these were the three uh, main areas that I was looking at. It wasn't as neat as I presented there. Literature never is. It was um, very much more um, uh, complex than that. One thing I did uh, find was that there was very, in terms of a Venn diagram, there was very little stuff that was at that intersection between all three circles. Um, and that's, I guess, be because it's a fairly new area in terms of pulling those three areas together. The other thing I should say is that those three areas went equal. There was a lot more um, uh, in, in some areas than in others. Um, and, and not all of it related directly to academic librarianship. So the knowledge economy and academic research side of things just touched on the, on the library side, if you like. The themes that I identified and the sub-themes, I have them there for you, open access policy and strategy, scholarly communication, and then the role of the library. Um, and that slide, uh, yeah, slightly slipped down, but they, the bottom one there is library skills and workforce development. And I coded them, so they weren't um, mutually exclusive as well. So um, a lot of the themes and the sub-themes kept recurring in the literature. I took them then to the Delphi study and, and, and tested them against the population to see uh, how that, how that uh, panned out, if you like. So, um, so what is a Delphi study? Um, I think that the, um, the best thing to do is to, is to uh, read out a quote from uh, Day and uh, Boveva, 2005. Delphi studies have been around for a very long time. They were used by the Rand Corporation back in the, in the early 1960s. Very good at predicting, um, using a group of experts, pulling them together to try to predict a, um, an outcome of a particular scenario or a solution to a particular puzzle. Um, and what they say is that Delphi is a structured group communication method for soliciting expert opinion about complex problems and novel ideas through the use of a series of questionnaires and controlled feedback. Um, and that's essentially what I did. I got 35 um, directors of library services in the UK. Um, I took the themes that I had gleaned from the literature um, and I put various scenarios to them and asked them questions um, about those themes. Uh, with a Delphi study, what you do is you, you gather in the uh, information from your first round of questions and then you share that back with the participants. Um, and by doing that, they get informed about the, the general um, consensus that they've arrived at. And based on that feedback and the questions, you develop further questions, a second round of questions, which you then take to the population again and ask them further um, for, to, to make further comments on this. Now, obviously, when the, when, when the approach was first um, invented, if you like, in the 60s, it was done um, with paper and, and pen and envelopes and postage. What I did with mine was I used Moodle, the virtual learning environment, and I set up the, the whole Delphi study as a course and enrolled the directors of um, library services and asked them questions. So there's um, a quick um, screenshot of the Delphi that I did. Um, that was around two questions page. One of the advantages of doing this this way, rather than using something like SurveyMonkey, is you get much greater engagement, so people actually enroll on the course 
um, they have they had the opportunity to comment to each other. They were all um, anonymous to each other as well, but they had identities within the course, so they could speak um, uh, to each other in, a, in an online forum. I used various different types of questions, and this one here is um, uh, uh, an access. Uh, basically, the statements are, are questions on a prediction access. So rather than doing a, a Likert scale, or just using only a Likert scale, or a, a closed question, I gave them um, options where they could choose between something being lightly and unlikely, but desirable, or lightly and unlikely, but undesirable. Um, and that um, had the benefit of um, pushing answers into a, a, a form of consensus. Um, there was also the ability to comment on every question. I also got the uh, participants to rank uh, statements. Um, these ones that are on screen are in five years' time. Um, so they were talking about um, 2020, because this was done uh, 2015. Um, and as you can see, the, uh, the statement there, an effective open scholarly communications model was the, the, the one that was voted the highest, the one that people ranked the highest. Um, that's what people wanted to see. Um, an effective research funding model I thought was going to come out top, but uh, as we've been listening earlier, that's, that's still um, needing to be pulled together. Um, data management, uh, research data management skills uh, for librarians was something that was a, a recurring theme and um, a fairly intractable problem as we moved forward. So, um, 35 participants completed round one. Um, this dropped to 24 participants for round two. Um, the number of participants completing both rounds then was 34, uh, sorry, 24. Um, in round one, 35 participants answered 49 questions. Not a lot of questions, if you like. Um, easy, easy for them to do. But that yielded 1,715 answers. Um, and the round one participants made a total of 41 comments. And in round two, 24 participants ranked 18 statements and made 26 comments. Taking both rounds together then, a total of 2,147 responses were provided, which is a, a, a significant piece of um, research data that I had generated myself and needed to be coded and wrestled with and uh, turned into something um, understandable. Um, The 67 comments um, that were received varied in length, the shortest being four words. can't quite recall what they were, but they weren't rude. Um, and the longest was 370 words. And the comments from both rounds amounted to a total of approximately uh, 3,500 words. So there was a, a narrative as well that needed to be um, analysed and, and explored in detail. Um, but not all, um, not all participants commented. So I had three main findings, which are up on the screen there for you. Um, I think the second one, the, um, the likely profound in impact of the concept and character of the academic library um, was, was quite important. And I'd like to just zoom in on that, if you, if, if, if you can. Um, 
So one of the areas that attracted a lot of discussion was the, the, the whole concept of the, um, the scholarly record and the evolving scholarly record. Um, the use of network te technology, ne networked technologies and uh, social media um, are changing the way research is disseminated. Um, and what we're used to is an end result. And what we're seeing now emerging is that the end result isn't actually the end result, and it doesn't need to be the end result. And that presents a challenge then for um, our ability to take um, a record of scholarly activity, a scholarly communication, or a, a journal article, um, and see that as being the culmination of a piece of research, when actually what's starting to happen is that it's just a snapshot of an ongoing discussion. So. Um, the Voy et al, uh, who authored this, um, looked at this scenario here on the screen, which is you've still got your outcomes, but you've got a, a process at the top and you've got an aftermath at the bottom, um, but you've got discussion going on in both. So you don't actually get to the point where your research has, has completed, but there is the ability, particularly if you place data online and people are commenting on that data and having views on that data, and when you're... Um, merging with other data sets or um, using other data sets to enhance your own data. The whole idea of um, getting to an end point um, with a piece of scholarship is now um, less certain than it has been before. And that obviously has a significant impact for the academic library for all of the um, activities. For example, assigning metadata to something that's constantly dynamic and constantly moving is quite a difficult thing to do. Um, and, and, and looking at the traditional funding approach to research that um, enhances other research is difficult to do if the research you're trying to enhance hasn't finally arrived at a position of completeness. So um, almost a philosophical, if you like, discussion um, about that side of things, but it's incredibly important to realize that part of the um, benefits of open access is that um, research doesn't need to culminate in the publishing of a, um, a traditional print-based piece, uh, piece, uh, piece of work. Um, and that's starting to emerge as a key challenge for, certainly for the library profession. Um, I developed a conceptual framework um, as, a, as, a, as an output from the, the research that I conducted. Um, and that... Um, in itself is, is fairly messy, and one of the next steps for me to do is to try to, try to uh, turn that into something that's a bit more easy to, to, um, to use in conversations. But I developed it because it was needed um, to uh, form the basis of discussions. And it was interesting, the previous uh, speaker that we were looking at, the person that was drawing that, um, that was the same kind of approach. So you've got, you've got three, um, three levels, if you like. You've got the stakeholder in green going across the top. You've got the activities, and you've got the environment. And we're moving from the left to the right in this in terms of time. So if you look at the bottom of the screen, um, this was used in my research. We're looking at two years ahead, then five years, and then ten years. Um, and the idea is that um, stuff that's happening in the present moment for the stakeholders, we've got researchers, librarians, uh, funders and publishers, and then as you move over to the right and get to the extreme right, which is 10 years' time, researchers and librarians are more prominent and publishers less so. 
um, and that's, that's one particular possible scenario. Um, then if you look at the activities, you can see many of the activities are now um, in, a, in a virtual and online environment, and that changes the, the whole skills development area and the participation and peer review and that side of things. Um, and moving down to the bottom, the environment, and that's moving from um, um, a print-based analog type environment, as we've seen for years, but it's moving strongly towards more collaborative and virtual. So, um, thank you very much for listening. I think I have a minute for a question, um, but we do have question time at the end, I think, as well. So if there are any questions, I'm happy to take it now, or you can save it up for later. Thank you, Ronan. So as Ronan says, we do have time for one or two quick questions, if anyone would like to ask Ronan a question. Okay, so um, these were not heads of my department, these were heads, directors of libraries uh, at universities throughout the UK, so 35 of them engaged. Um, I opened the uh, Moodle survey for uh, three weeks um, initially um, and got, uh, got a very good response. Um, I had approached 140 uh, people initially, 35 people bought into it, so they spent three weeks um, answered the questions. I then crunched that first round and then went back to, uh, to them with further questions. So I guess overall, on and off, they spent, in, in terms of period of time, uh, probably a couple of months. But the, the questioning was very straightforward and simple. Thank you. I suspect it's what we've always done, but I also suspect that it's more obvious now because of technology, and I think it's more, it's come to the fore and more, uh, probably easier to, to, to appreciate and to understand. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so um, our next speaker is going to be Roman Frey from um, Lille University. Yep. And Roman is gonna talk to us about Supporting researchers on open science from building a research project to its end. So, good morning, everybody. So, I'm working at the University Library of Lille as a coordinator of research uh, services, uh, research data management services. And uh, just to say a few words about my institution, we are hosting about three, a bit more than 3,000 researchers and we are a multidisciplinary uh, university. So I'm going to present a specific set of services we developed as, uh, for uh, research project coordinators. And I will uh, first present our approach, uh, which kind of services we offer and how we implement them. And finally, I will uh, explain what uh, new perspectives it opened up uh, for us. Um, 
We started to work on uh, to offer some services related to research data management from about uh, from 2014. Uh, but at the time, uh, the context was not really in our favor for different reasons. Uh, mainly uh, that first, uh, the main French funders, the ANR, had no uh, requirements related to data management, and our institutional poli uh, uh, our in university had no uh, institutional uh, policy uh, regarding to data management as well. And partly as a consequence of this, uh, our researchers had quite a weak interest for data management. So we thought maybe we could uh, start working with uh, Edge 2020 projects because uh, there was uh, the Open Research Data Pilot, uh, which started from 2014. But uh, it uh, proved to be quite a limited action lever uh, for different reasons as well. Uh, first, we had very few Edge 2020 projects in our institution as coordinator. And when you are a partner in a European project, then most of the time you have very limited responsibility regarding uh, data management. And second, uh, all our research projects that should have been covered by the data pilot in which we were coordinator, they systematically opted out during the period uh, between 2014 and 2017. And finally, when the first uh, project uh, started within the data pilot, uh, we recognized at the beginning of the project that uh, some uh, consulting firm uh, had been uh, included within the project to, um, to make all the tasks related to project management, which included uh, both open access and data management planning. So this experience and the different exchange we had with both coordinators and project partners showed us that it was important for us uh, to be identified as uh, the open science uh, go-to service as soon as the writing of the grant proposal and we also discovered how complex can be the uh, management of our research project so we thought that we needed to support our co coordinators through uh, all the, the project lifetime. So just to say, uh, to have a quick overview about uh, what is the project lifetime. So it starts with the writing of the grant proposal, which will last for a couple of months. And then the proposal is submitted to the funder uh, about three to six months later. And then uh, the proposal will be evaluated and the funder will either ac accept it or reject it. And if it's accepted, uh, then they have to write the, grant, the project grant agreement and the project will, will start about one year to one year and a half later uh, after the beginning of the writing of the grant proposal. And then projects will last for three to five years as an average, and finally they will end five to seven years after the very beginning uh, of the writing of the grant proposal. So which means that's uh, very, very long, uh, that's, that lasts for quite a long time, and uh, it's important for coordinators to be supported through all these stages. So the set of services we uh, developed for coordinators start with uh, helping them at co-writing their uh, grant proposals. Uh, first goal of this is to improve uh, their chances to be funded by improving their uh, proposal uh, and including different and contributing to different parts of it. And the second idea is to uh, make their project management easier if they are funded uh, by anticipating different issues related to data, data management. Then for ongoing projects, we will uh, help them to monitor uh, the compliance with their open access requirements. And 
both for, to make the coordination easier and to make sure that from the, publish, from the publishing on the publisher platform until uh, the proper reporting on the European Commission tools, uh, the workflow for publication is uh, clear for all the partners and uh, goes well. On data management, we will uh, support, we support them at the writing of the DMP and we also advise them on how the coordinator and its partners can implement uh, good data management practices. So if, if we go into more details about what we actually do, so at the pre-award submission, uh, the researchers send us the proposal and we will read the proposal and then we will have an interview uh, on a more or less systematic way. And uh, based on this, based on the information uh, that we obtained about the project and on the level of uh, openness the coordinator wants to apply to his uh, project, we will contribute uh, to its proposal. So mainly on the work package on project management by uh, including open science as uh, deliverables and tasks and sometimes in, in terms of budget as well. And we will also contribute uh, to the dissemination strategy uh, to make it as open as possible. Uh, we also bring some more minor contribution to other parts in some projects, uh, especially related to data, uh, for example, on risks management or to help them anticipate uh, the ethics issues. What we do not do uh, that we don't contribute on either uh, administrative and scientific aspects. Uh, this is not our job and the grant office is doing this uh, better than us. And we just support projects in which we are coordinator uh, because as I said earlier, when you are only partners and uh, you are a bit less concerned with uh, all the open science issues. And we do not take part to meetings with all the partners at this stage uh, because uh, it proved to be too time consuming and so we decided to, to stop this service. At the post-award phase, uh, phase uh, we will support the project coordination uh, by uh, informing and training both the coordinator and its partners on open science requirements, uh, which involves taking part to uh, project meetings and especially to the kickoff meeting. And then we will also uh, have some regular meetings with the coordinator at least once a year uh, to make some kind of open science checkup and be sure that everything is going all right. And finally, sometimes it could happen that the project officer has a couple of questions about open science and most of the time it's quite urgent questions when, uh, when you come to the coordinator. And so on this matter, we will directly uh, answer to the project officer request with the coordinator in copy, of course. Um, about open access and data management, I just listed a couple of services we do. So sometimes our uh, project partners, they do not know where they can upload their publications or they do not know which services they could go to in their own institution. So we will uh, inform them about it. And we will also uh, manage reporting of publications on the European uh, participant portal. Um, and on data management, uh, we mainly support the writing of the DMP and we review this DMP as well. So what we do not do uh, on these services is we do not contact partners directly. Uh, this is uh, our coordinator's responsibility and we are more here to give him or her elements on, on what uh, he or she should ask to his uh, partners. And we do not, know, uh, we do not uh, also upload publications into repository or assume any uh, task related to the actual uh, data management because this is uh, 
the work of researchers and we are just here to support them. Uh, this set of services, because it changed our position from the end of the research uh, life cycle uh, and we, we moved much uh, forward at the beginning of it, it brought many new perspectives for us. And one of the most important, I think, is that it helped us to reach a new audience, uh, some specific uh, researchers that we were not working with before. Uh, because usually we are mainly working with early career research, uh, researchers or with uh, unit, uh, unit research directors with more administrative responsibility than scientific one. And now we are more reaching like really um, advanced researchers with a widely uh, recognized academic status. So just with a couple of figures, uh, if we just consider the eight project coordinators, uh, eight coordinators of ongoing projects we are working with at the moment, uh, as an average there are 53 and uh, if we have a look at the, the bibliometric data in Scopus, uh, they published more than 280 publications each, and they have an edge index ranging from 27 to 130, and with an average number of citations received, of, uh, which, is, which exceeds uh, 12,500. So, of course, we all know the limitations of this kind of data, but for researchers, it means something about uh, the recognition of this kind of researchers. A second important point is that uh, we are, because we are um, working in a long-term perspective with researchers and that we are meeting with them regularly, uh, we are more considered as a project partner than uh, just a service provider and it, change, uh, it helps us to build, uh, to build a mutual trust relationship uh, which proved to be quite a good way to make them change their practices, uh, especially on data management. Well. Um, winning grants for researchers is really important. That's really a crucial uh, thing in the research. And uh, that's, uh, we, we can measure our added value on this matter on different, from different perspectives. The first of it is uh, the review we have are from project reviewers. Uh, so some reviewers uh, take good note of the open science strategy and dissemination we implemented within the project. So the first review comes from an French uh, project from the ANR and the second one from an ERC project. And so we received good feedback. It doesn't mean that every reviewers are aware about open science issues. Sometimes they, they don't really care about it, but uh, I think that more and more they will, they will, be, they will notice this kind of contribution. And we also uh, have very good feedback from the researchers we are working with. And so once again, as they are like Serge Bobigo, which is, who is an ERC advanced uh, researcher, uh, as they are very visible in our institution, this kind of positive feedback uh, helps us to, to reach uh, more many researchers. Partly due to this um, good feedback we have, uh, this set of services is expanding quickly. So we started uh, to help projects at writing their grant proposal from uh, autumn in 2017. And for the first three semesters, we were only uh, supporting a couple of projects. And it, we really scaled up uh, from January since we uh, supported more than 20 projects at writing that grant proposal uh, this year already. And this is mainly due to the new uh, policy implemented by the French funders, the ANR. And so we expect this uh, figure to keep increasing in the coming months. Uh, if we have a look at the number of ongoing projects we are supporting, 
Uh, so the number is uh, much uh, it's uh, much smaller, but it's increasing as well, and at a slower uh, pace, and uh, uh, and with a lag compared to uh, the, the, the projects we support at the submission stage. But we expect it to increase uh, quite a lot uh, in at next autumn because of the newly funded INR projects. This set of services has also been a very good opportunity to build new partnerships with services we were not working with uh, before, or not in this way at least. So of course the first of them is the grant office. Um, we are, so we are taking part to information sessions uh, with them in which we, they invite us and uh, they also provide us uh, access to applicants. And we also work with other uh, university support services, such as the IT service or the data protection officer. And I also mentioned research units because we, we were already working with our research units, but uh, this specific set of services has uh, proven to have very good synergies with other uh, services we offer, such as our, our institutional repository. Well, so I'm going to just draw a couple of perspectives for the future. So, so far we were only two librarians working on this and if we want to keep uh, increasing the number of projects we are working with, uh, we now need to involve uh, a greater number of librarians and especially on uh, the open access part of the service. And uh, we also plan to develop new ways to support projects. So far, we've been mainly working on a project-by-project project basis, and we now want to have a more collective approach and make some kind of uh, training session with only project coordinators. So we'll start from uh, next uh, September. And finally, the last point is about uh, how can we build the business model. Uh, so most of the, most of the research uh, projects do not actually budget resources for data management and we need them to budget more and more of this kind of resources. So we started with data storage, but we are still at the very beginning of it. And we, we have to work with our grant office on uh, making sure that our projects uh, increase the, the level of resources they dedicate to data management. Well, hopefully uh, the presentation was interesting enough to convince some of, some of you to develop as a similar set of services. So if I just had to, from our experience, to give you three tips about it, I would say, first of all, uh, be proactive, uh, since libraries and librarians are clearly not identified as a usual uh, partner for uh, grant proposal writing and project management. And at the beginning for us, it was uh, difficult to be uh, for the gr our grant office to identify us as a partner and to recognize our added value. Um, so what we did is that we went directly to researchers and to research units. And based on their very good feedback, uh, it helped us to cooperate uh, better with our grant office. Uh, second tip is what is really important for researchers is the uh, funder's opinion. So either the project's a reviewer's opinion or, uh, the, uh, or the project officer's uh, uh, consideration for the, open science, for the open science activities led within the project. So this is something, if you have good feedback from the, your funders, then that's really positive to convince researchers working with you. And finally, uh, when we are presenting this to some colleagues, sometimes they are surprised about the fact that we are supporting a lot of researchers with complying with open access requirements. And it has really to be noticed that uh, open access is not granted even for funded projects. 
and there are many many projects that have uh, on that are only partly comply with their open access requirements and sometimes they are really far to comply with them uh, fully and in a completely satisfactory way well i finished so thank you very much for your your attention if you have questions Thank you, Roman. I think we have we have time for a few questions. Yeah. I have, uh, in fact, two questions. Um, the first is, uh, um, how do you uh, approach the laboratory uh, with to propose uh, uh, your help to uh, uh, to make frequencies to quant uh, relation? Because uh, uh, the researchers are often uh, uh, not very happy to the, uh, if uh, the libraries uh, make an inclusion for, for, for them. And um, the second question, you say um, we don't want to uh, deposit uh, the open access papers or to uh, manage uh, open data because uh, it's uh, the researchers' jobs. And um, our researchers uh, say us often, um, you know, you say that you, that you are uh, professional information, you say that you have a competence, why, did, why uh, don't you uh, manage your data? Why don't you uh, uh, deposit uh, our papers? It's your job. Mm. And uh, finally, it's a debate. Uh, if you, we want to uh, to uh, co uh, uh, to uh, uh, augment it, uh, increase, increase the, the, the number of uh, data and uh, publication uh, in open access, why uh, don't we uh, do the job? Mm. Well, first question, how we reach uh, project coordinators. So we are uh, informing research unit directors about this set of services, and we are also uh, working with the grant office and taking part to some information session. And in some of our research units, there are uh, some kind of grant officer directly within uh, the research unit. So uh, they are very good relay because they know who is uh, proposing, who is uh, writing which kind of proposal, and they are aware of it early enough to make uh, us work with the coordinators at the right moment. So this is the way we, we work with them. And we are only a service they have to go to on, only on a voluntary basis. If they are not interested in working with us, there is absolutely no obligation about it. So the ones that come, they comes, uh, they're happy to come to us. And second question, uh, why don't we do it uh, uh, instead of them? Well, first, it's time consuming. and the, the deal we are making with researchers is saying we are helping you with the coordination tasks and then your job is to do the rest and like to do the to properly upload your publications into the repository with the good metadata and then we will make the, the continuous reporting for you but this is kind of deal we propose them and this is important that researchers do that do their work as well for one more question if anyone has one I just had a really quick question, Roman. Earlier on, you outlined what it is that you do and what you don't do as part of the project. 
just wondering, did you sit down at the beginning with the researchers and explain this is what we do and this is what we don't do, or did that happen organically? So far it was something that we did not make very formal, but we are now formal, make it, we are making it more formal, and especially because we also want them to to give uh, to give us feedbacks, like to send us the project reviewers they, are, uh, they receive and this kind of uh, product evaluations that they have, these kind of things. And so this is something we want to make a bit more formal so that they know what are their obligations regarding to us if we support them and which kind of exact service we're going to provide them with. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Ron. Okay, so next up we have Scott Taylor, and Scott is Research Services Manager at the University of Manchester. And Scott is going to talk to us about Beyond Compliance, helping authors reach a broader range of audiences with simpler expressions of their work. It's a long title. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much, Lana. So, Ronan's so far spoken about the uh, research library's role across the research lifecycle. And then Romain's talked in a bit more detail about uh, how the library can uh, play a role at the initiation of a project and, and through the project. So my talk is going to focus a bit more on the post-publication phase. So as Lana says, how can we help authors uh, reach a, a broader range of audiences? So I'll talk about how we've invested in our existing open access services uh, to hopefully achieve uh, that aim. I'm going to structure my talk in this way. I'll... I'll begin by providing a bit of background and talk about the landscape of open access at Manchester. I'll talk about the challenges that we face if we, if we have ambitions to establish the library within this part of the scholarly communication chain. It's a new part of the chain that we don't really have any history in, so it's, uh, it's hard. Uh, so I'll talk about that. I'll spend most of the time talking about the approach that we've taken, what practical steps have we taken to help authors reach these audiences, and I'll, uh, I'll conclude by reflecting on some of our early outcomes. Um, so, uh, obligatory uh, overview of, of the university that I'm from. Uh, Manchester is a large research-intensive university. Uh, we contribute new knowledge across all, all, all the whole range of academic disciplines, um, we, uh, we, we, we group together um, our research activities which are really addressing the big challenges of our time around five main themes. Uh, they are global inequality, um, cancer, energy, uh, industrial biotechnologies and advanced materials. I remember them. Um, and we, we brand those as our research beacons uh, and I'll come back to talk about the beacons later on in my talk. Of course, now, uh, as, as anywhere else, the, the funders require open access, uh, and so all those papers that we're producing every year as a university, they have to be open access. Uh, and the library has, uh, our library has a well-established role in helping our authors achieve open access. Uh, back in 2016, we developed a, a service which we've called the Open Access Gateway, which is a, a lightweight form, and really all the authors have to do is when, the paper, when they have a paper accepted, drag and drop the accepted manuscript into this form, tell us where it will be published and when it, when it was accepted, and then we'll do everything else for them, setting them back, whether that be green or gold, uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do all that so they don't have, they don't have to worry about it. I've put a, a, the, the, the chart on the right-hand side shows the kind of deposit behavior since 2016. The light blue section of the bar chart shows the proportion of authors who are de depositing directly to our CRIS system, which is pure. 
the orangey goldy section it shows the proportion of papers that are being deposited to our gateway so you can see year on year since 2016 actually the trend is that authors are becoming a bit more comfortable depositing the manuscript themselves however that chart that's gold section orange section in 2019 still represents about 2,000 papers a year which come through our gateway so there's a huge amount of traffic that goes through that form since 2016 there's been an absolute explosion in green open access at manchester you can see for maybe you won't it's a bit of a tricky chart to interpret but trust me when i say there's a lot of green open access happening at manchester the, the green section of that um uh, chart shows uh, the proportion of green open access so there's two and a half thousand ish uh, papers a year are available through green open access the rest uh, show the different types of open access and the red is where the papers are not open access i.e not compliant with the ref open access uh, requirements I'm not standing up here saying that we've cracked open access by any means. Uh, that's, the green open access is, is very manual. Far too many uh, uh, transactions involved in, in achieving that green open access, and it's, most of it's behind embargoes, so uh, it's not immediately available. And the gold is also available, uh, is published through hybrid, uh, so it's, it's in subscription journals. So that's going to be a challenge when we get round to Plan S. That'll be a fun uh, challenge for us. Um, but for the first time, but for the first time in the university's history, we can say that the, the majority, the vast majority of the research papers that we produce are ultimately going to be available for free to anybody who has access to the web. The, I had a look on Eurekalert, which is a service which is reasonably new to me. I didn't know about it until probably uh, early this year. <clears throat> um, and this is how the press officers um, sh share their press releases. So I checked to see how many Manchester papers had got a press release this year so far, and there's been 100. But if you look at how many Manchester outputs have been in, are indexed in Scopus each year, there's about 8,000. So um, even if every one of those press releases has a paper uh, underpinning it, that's no more than 3% of the university's outputs are getting the institutional support. Um, and often when they do get that support, the papers will be in some way related to the research beacons, so the strategically important research. So um, there's, there's a, a huge long tail there of papers that are not getting the institutional support uh, in terms of uh, uh, amplifying visibility. And that's where we think as a library, we can really add value. So I've set the landscape and now talk a bit more about the, the challenges if we want to establish ourselves, as I say, in this, in this part of the scholarly communication chain. Um, one of the big challenges is that that is, the, is the language that's used in, in research articles. Uh, it's no good having 100% open access if, if accessibility is as much of a barrier as the paywall is. I mean, I am a non-specialist in all fields, and, uh, and I'll, I'll read a paper and I won't I'll understand bits of the abstract, but I won't understand the, the, the body of the text. And if you want to reach these audiences that I've listed on the right-hand side, you can make it open access all day long, but you're not going to reach them. Uh, they're not going to understand the significance of them. Uh, and then there, there was a, a study that was done recently around attitudes to online scholarly communication uh, among social scientists. And there was a, you know, they, they listed the reasons why academics might not want to engage in this type of activity. So cost too much time and lack of interest, which I think is, is probably linked to unclear benefits. Uh, those are the two main reasons that academics don't want to engage in this type of activity. So again, this is something I think the library can help um, convince academics that there is worth uh, 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 engaging in this type of thing. 
So, okay, I've set the scene a lot. Uh, so I'll talk about the approach. What, have, what practically have we done? So back in March this year, we launched a new service, which we've called Open Access Plus. Uh, so it's an enhancement of our ex existing open access uh, gateway service and it, can, it works across three key kind of dimensions. The first is around at the individual article level. So we ha we, we've developed the support around individual articles. So the most visible thing that we did, <clears throat> we added a couple of questions onto our open access gateway. So remember I said there's 2,000 papers a year go through this gateway, so a huge amount of traffic. So we added two questions. First question was, do you think that this paper might generate press attention? And if the author checks the box, then we send that accepted manuscript to the uh, relevant press officer in each of our faculties. So that, that, that the point there is that they get a really long lead in time. So the paper's just been accepted. We send the manuscript and the press officer can have a really good look and, and they can decide whether it's newsworthy uh, or not. Um, and then the second question, which, is, which allows authors to opt in to, to receive some more customized guidance that we will provide them to help them reach non-academic audiences. So if they check that box, that second box, within a day, we will, um, we've we built a script which queries the altmetric API, and we'll send the last thousand uh, DOIs from the journal that they're gonna publish in through this, this script, and it will, it will generate a spreadsheet which lists all of the Twitter accounts, the blogs, the news platforms, which have most frequently mentioned articles in that journal. And you'll, you can sort that by count or followers or whatever. And we send that to the authors the next day by email with a bit of guidance to say, here's some, in if you want to expand your network, you may want to follow these guys. Um, uh, uh, and then what we also did was we built a, a separate a standalone tool which synchronizes with our Chris system, which we've called the Open Access Compliance Platform. So there's a live synchronization between uh, our pure instance and this tool. So it stores 18,000 records uh, of, of research outputs. And it allows us to annotate those records in a way that we can't do in our Chris system. So for example, we can filter out those papers where the authors have opted into our OA Plus service. We can filter out papers where the authors have asked for a press release. And every, <clears throat> every morning, it will search the Crossref API for those accepted papers and it will send that, that title through as a string. And if it returns a DOI, then that's a good clue to us that it, the paper's been published. So uh, we, we, sometimes, we often find papers that the next day we know the paper's been published, which is really uh, advantageous for us if we want to publicize the, 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 the paper. So um, I don't know if, if you can really see that, but I took a screen grab of it. Hopefully it's not too illegible. So what we do then, once the paper's published, once we've been alerted to the fact that the paper's been published, we send the manuscript through this new tool called Scholarcy, which is a machine learning tool, which will, it doesn't matter on, it doesn't seem to matter what format the manuscript is in, PDF, Word, even LaTeX, I'm, I think it's pretty flexible. And it will read uh, the paper and generate a, a bullet point summary for us, and uh, it will tweak some of the language so it's a little bit more understandable. So that means we don't have to read through the papers because we wouldn't understand it anyway, but it, it generates uh, a nice summary for us. Um, and then we've created a Twitter account uh, through which we can then publicize the fact that the paper's been published and we will include images to make it very engaging. We'll link to the open access version of the paper in our repository. We'll tag all the people that we think might be interested in the paper based on our, on our altmetric report. And we'll use the scholarly summary to, cr to craft quite a nice narrative around the paper so it, there's, there's no barrier there in terms of language. 
and we'll, and we'll, and we'll, we'll obviously tag the authors if they're on Twitter to say, here's a nice package uh, that you can use. We've tagged the underlying research data. We've tagged the, the, the funders that are acknowledged. You should retweet this and share it with your network. At the same time, we use a, a, another open source tool which um, was developed by the Israel Institute of Technology which is really cool, and you can send the abstract through it, and, it will, and it has, it's ranked over half a million words in, in order of frequency. So the, the least frequent words will appear as red and amber in that abstract. So this is a really good way for the authors to be kind of unlocked from the jargon of their field. Uh, any word that's flagged as red or amber, perhaps they could think about phrasing that in a slightly different way that might make it a bit more understandable. And we'll also link to uh, the paper in Kudos, which, if you're not familiar with Kudos, it's a, a platform which allows um, authors to create non-technical descriptions of their research and share that through uh, social media. We'll also link to the con uh, uh, we'll 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 uh, provide a link to the conversation blog. So if they want to pitch a blog post uh, related to their research, they can do that. So there's a, a, a range of things that we we support them with at the individual article level. We take a kind of a similar approach with research areas or, or research themes. Uh, in terms of promoting them. Um, we, we used um, Elsevier's SciVal tool. Uh, with the, the, we used the topic cluster feature within that tool. And, the, and it's, really, it's really powerful because what it does, it will group together papers into, into intellectually related groups based on the fact that they're citing the same papers in their references. So you may get papers in different journals and from different parts of the university which actually have been assigned to the same cluster within SciVal. Um, and then we'll take that information and, and mash it up with other information that we have from Altmetric and from other local data sources. And, we'll, and we've created a little Tableau dashboard uh, that we can use then. So the bubble chart in the top left is all of the topic clusters that Manchester is strong at. The, the, the panel on the top right is the individual papers and the panel on the bottom right is, are the individual authors and their Twitter handles and how many followers they've got um, and where in the university they're from. So we could select, uh, kind of at random, but uh, we could select an individual topic. So this particular topic is emergencies, patients, and hospitals. And in the top right-hand panel there, it's filtered out 11 open access papers that are either gold or green, and the embargo has elapsed, that we could promote through our Twitter account, which are related in some way to emergencies, patients, and hospitals. And in the bottom right there are the authors from that have written the paper, where they're from, and how many Twitter uh, followers they've got if they're on Twitter. So we can pick out the, 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 paper, the people who are on Twitter and active and have got lots of followers. We can cherry pick those papers. We also have the field-weighted citation score and the altmetric score. So we could choose the papers that have attracted the most academic and non-academic <laughs> interest. And then we can craft a really nice uh, cross-organizational promotion thread which you know really showcases all the great research that's happening across Manchester which is uh, you know, intellectually related and you send those papers through scholarly again tag all the people we think might be interested in emergencies patients and hospitals and, and, and really every, we aim to do one of these type of threads every week uh, which is really we call that the OA, OA showcase thread the third dimension to, the, to, the, to this uh, OA Plus service is around marketing campaigns. So we've begun to work really closely with, that, with our central marketing and communications colleagues. I mentioned the research beacons. So they uh, uh, take a lead in, in promoting those beacons uh, on, on a global scale. 
So a notable uh, recent campaign that we worked with them on was to promote our industrial biotechnology beacon. Um, so that they came to us and said, okay, could you tell us who on earth is interested in industrial biotechnology? So we, we, we identified all the papers that related to biofuel, uh, food biotechnology and biohealth. And we generated that list of, of Twitter accounts that are, have, have tweeted about papers in that field before and um, then sent them along the spreadsheet. They have a budget for promoted tweets so they can pay for their copy or their, their videos or GIFs or whatever to appear in the threads of those people. So they've done that and uh, they've done that on multiple occasions now and it's really been beneficial for them. I, I, you know, this video here got 314,000 views. You know, I, I, saw, I saw the video, it was, it was okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why it got so many views, but I, I think hopefully in, in no small part due to the fact that we could provide them with really targeted information that they could uh, put this, 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 uh, this content in front of people. So really big success for us. So, okay, so now I'll just conclude uh, by reflecting on some of the, the, the early outcomes of this service. Is, that, is the juice worth the squeeze? Um, so we asked our marketing colleagues whether they could provide us with some information about what happened when we, they used our data and what happened when they didn't use our data. So the first uh, kind of teal colored uh, chart there shows um, a campaign that they ran back in 2016 which didn't use our data. And so they had 32,000 video views and they had 402 tweet engagements. And the cost to their marketing budget was £1.5 per engagement, which I'm not a marketing person, but that seems quite high. Um, and then they used our data the next year to, to target people across three separate campaigns. And you can see actually all the engagement stats went really in the right direction. Um, people watched the video to completion, they engaged with the tweet much more, and actually the cost per engagement went down to kind of 15, um, 14 pence. So they were actually thrilled with, with this data. Um, they told us not to tell anybody about it, but um, we're all about open. Uh, so sorry. Uh, uh, so, and, and what's been the engagement with our with our form with our OA Gateway form? Well, oh, since March, 16% of authors have checked the box to say yes, I'd like to receive customized guidance. We've not done any real promotion around this yet because we don't want to. It's kind of we're in soft launch territory. We're still understanding the, the staffing consequences for this service. So we didn't want to do a big splash because we don't want everybody checking the box. But 16% of people have checked it out of curiosity. And then we've looked into the three faculties that we have. The Faculty of Humanities are the most keen on this service, with the Faculty of Science and Engineering the least keen. They're losing out. Um, but uh, and that's interesting in its own right, you know, to show the kind of attitudes across the different disciplines to this type of activity. Um, in terms of the Twitter data, we, we're aiming for a million engagements in our first year, completely arbitrary. I don't know why, but it sounds good. A million engagements. So if, after three months, we've got 364,000 engagements. So we're on track for that, for what it's worth. Uh, and then qualitatively, we've had a really great range of different engagements with our, with our tweets that we've put out, the threads. We've had um, comments from government uh, uh, officials, um, practitioners in the field, other academics, uh, saying different uh, patients, saying different things about, about the tweets that we're putting out there. And uh, some of them are saying they're going to cite the papers as well. So we've, we've directly caused a citation, which uh, I've made sure that uh, our senior leadership know all about that. And equally, this, this kind of um, approach where we're using the altmetric data to tag people into tweets that we think might be interested, 
we were really quite nervous about this approach. It's quite a provocative approach for an academic library to take. Uh, we, the first time I did it, it was like this. Um, but we, we've got some really nice feedback again from people who we've tagged into the threads to say, uh, yes, great, I am interested in the paper. Um, uh, I don't know how you did it, but I'm interested. Uh, a couple have said, why did you tag me in this? Uh, but I'm not going to put those in the slides. Um, and these are the good news stories. Uh, and in terms of helping the universe, I mean, we know that this Twitter thread, this Twitter account will have kind of uh, impacts around the boundaries. We, we know what, you know, we, we don't want to uh, get ahead of ourselves. What we really want to do is promote and instigate culture change across the university. So we're, we're, we have 32 schools and divisions across the university. So from August, we're going to send out um, a benchmarking report f to every school and division to help them understand a bit more about um, how they compare with the other research intensive universities across the UK. So th there's, there's a load of other in interesting information we'll put in these reports, but every research director and head of school will receive a standard metrics report. And th so this, for example, shows that our nursing, midwifery and social work uh, division are kind of in the lower half of the table compared with similar groups of researchers across the Russell group uh, in terms of how much Twitter at attention that their, their papers are attracting. So hopefully this can be a good tool to, for, for the management within the schools and divisions to encourage and, and develop their, 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 their approaches to, to this kind of scholarly communication. Um, so I just want to kind of end with saying thank you very much for listening. And here's the, the Twitter handle for our Open Access Plus service. So if you are on Twitter, I would encourage you to you know, uh, uh, follow us and, and follow our, our journey as, we, as the service develops. Uh, so thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Scott. I think we have time for just one question. Uh, with automatic uh, way, uh, ways 
uh, yeah, I mean, the fir the f your first question around uh, w w what's the most suitable way to reach the audiences that would be able to use your re the research. Um, we work in partnership with other functions within the university, so we have a uh, engagement at Manchester function, which is not which is based in the centre, but they will help researchers set up school trips with virtual reality headsets. They'll set up exhibitions. You know, there's lots. There's a range of. I mean, we know that this is just a very small section of what can be achieved through public uh, in the public engagement sphere. <clears throat> so we we we're working on developing our partnerships with those different parts of the university to help researchers understand well what did they say to their funders what did they promise they would do but also what's the most effective way to reach those audiences so this is we're just a, a one a one uh, section of this uh, chain and yeah we uh, we know that uh, currently our, our open access services are very manual very very manual um, <clears throat> you heard yesterday from the deep green project which is a uh, uh, based on a publication router service that was developed by JISC. Um, there, there are obviously, there is obviously a, a version of, of things that we can all imagine where everything just flows nicely from publishers with perfect metadata and the right version of the manuscript and the licensing is all sorted out. Um, and that's something that kind of we can all imagine, but in reality, uh, we're still away, away, away from that. So we do, it does require quite a lot of manual uh, uh, processes. So obviously there are staffing consequences for that as well. But so far, you know, that's been absorbed by library budgets. Okay, so last up, I'm delighted to introduce Claire, Claire Thorpe who is Associate Director from the University of Southern Queensland in Australia. She travelled some distance to be here, so you're very welcome, Claire. Claire is going to talk to us about an evidence-based practice in research and academic libraries and applied approach. Thank you, Lorna. So now for something completely different. Um, the previous presentations have really focused on how libraries support researchers. What I'd like to do is tell you a bit of a story from my institution about how we're actually empowering the librarians themselves to become better re practitioner researchers. So before I begin, I'd like to just acknowledge that this uh, presentation was created on the traditional lands that belong to the Yagara, Yugara and Yugarabal people of the Ipswich region, which is where my office is based in Australian Aboriginal culture, knowledge and country are interlinked. And so we do begin gatherings like this by acknowledging the traditional landowners. I'd also like to acknowledge the work of my co-author, Elisa Howlett. You're very welcome to mention her on Twitter. So yesterday we heard from our keynote speaker about the Ask for Evidence campaign in the community. And so what I'd like to share with you is a story about how we're challenging our librarians to ask for evidence as part of their everyday work and how we also challenge them to contribute to the evidence and research base of our own profession. Um, so I do come from a long way away. I am the odd one out in this session. I'm not from Europe. Um, and I'm also not a researcher myself. However, I'd like to share a little bit about what we're doing and hopefully it will be of interest. University of Southern Queensland, we're proud of a couple of things I'd like to mention because of how the library engages. Uh, firstly, we are the university in Australia that provides tertiary pathways for incarcerated students, so people who are in prisons and detention centres around the country, and the library 
contributes to that by providing copyright and offline content to those prisoners. And it's a very successful program we're very proud of. We are also the first Southern Hemisphere member of the Open Textbook Network. And last week we, we published our first original created open text. So they're two things that we're very proud of within the library. But particularly we support a student cohort that is 75% online. So most of our students are first in their family to come to university and are generally mature age and do take longer to complete their degrees. So in 2016 our library underwent a significant organisational change and part of the environmental scanning and the staff development work that went with that process, uh, our senior leaders decided not to appoint a data analyst or a business process analyst or a quality manager, but rather a coordinator of evidence-based practice as a strategic decision to support the decision-making and strategic planning within our library. So that position was created at the end of 2016. We do believe it is the first of its kind in Australia. So when I'm talking about evidence-based practice, I know in um, the European context you might have an assessment librarian or use the word assessment. Sometimes performance management is also used. So they're slightly interchangeable terms. The definition on screen is the one that we've adopted for our library. So evidence-based librarianship's been around as a term since 1997. It did come out of the health sector where librarians were supporting clinicians to be evidence-based. And the term evidence-based is across a number of research domains now, including education, uh, business management and the like, as well as being in the clinical sciences. So we tend to start conversations in this space about describing what evidence-based practice in our context is not. And it's not just about data and statistics or metrics, but rather an approach that is more holistic it is about continuous service improvement and professional practice. And when I talk about evidence, what I'm talking about is a whole range of sources. Um, we don't have a hierarchy of evidence. We argue that we use the right evidence for the right audience to communicate the right message, to communicate with influence. So evidence can cover everything from research literature, from original discoveries, qualitative, quantitative, mixed methods, but it can also include local data that we as libraries gather, including things like surveys, feedbacks, observations, user experience, uh, even organisational information, our policies, our procedures. And it can also include what's defined as professional knowledge. So that expertise and tacit knowledge that our staff have, peer-to-peer uh, -peer information, benchmarking and other non-research literature. This is our first attempt to conceptualise what evidence-based practice looks like within our library. And so you can see here the role of the coordinator is an empowering one. We are trying to reach a point where our library acts evidence-based as a way of being. What we try to encourage our staff to realise is that this way of working is not necessarily linear. It is messy, it is continuous, it's multi-directional. And it does um, contain a series of interrelated activities. So as our library staff interpret, apply, measure and communicate, our, communicate evidence, our services become better aligned with strategies and goals. Our outcomes and impact lead to greater influence and advocacy on behalf of our clients. Evidence underpins all our work 
and our staff are, of course, central to our success. So this is what we are aiming for. What I'd like to do is talk a little bit about how we've actually seen this cultural change applied, and then I'll be finishing my presentation with some research um, in this space. But I guess the way that we're stepping our staff through this process is through this seven-step process. And this is one that was used by our library director when she implemented our organisational change in 2016. So, for example, we've articulated the expectation around being an evidence-based library by putting in every staff role description a statement about their requirement for each individual to participate in a culture of evidence-based practice to contribute to scholarly work and to use scholarly work to inform and innovate their library practice. So every staff is charged with this. So much of the work of our coordinator, Elisa, is in building relationships, in building staff expertise and in communicating the benefits of working this way to our teams and encouraging <coughs> small steps in this space. So I explain it to her that small wins like ripples in a pond, through those small actions we've seen a development of a broader and deeper understanding and we are starting to see the cultural impacts. So I've got a couple of um, tangible impacts to show you. The first is a conceptual framework that was designed by our Associate Director of Content. Our library, and please don't tweet this, our library was essentially neglected for about 10 years by university leadership. So as such, we have been rebuilding and redefining who the library is within the university's context. And that's required a lot of thinking work and a lot of thinking about how we communicate that to our stakeholders, and particularly our executive and our academics. And so this framework was Tani's way of helping to explain why the library makes decis the decisions that we do around the content that we collect, curate, and potentially dispose of. Now, from an evidence-based practice and cultural change perspective, what was really empowering for us was that the original version of this diagram had evidence as just one petal of this flower. What you can see now, though, in the way that this illustration is designed is evidence informs every single element of the thinking that we do around our content. And that was a really, uh, a really big win for us. So what that looks like in practice, going down um, the ranks, is that our staff, our, our subject librarians, are now actually putting that conceptual content framework into practice. And this is the tool that they are using to communicate to academics around electronic um, subscription evaluation. I'm sure many of you would have a tool like this within your institution. But the power of having a tool like this is that our librarians are stepped through a number of questions that result in evidence-based decisions. And these decisions are reproducible, they are consistent across subjects, they are transparent, they are easily communicated, and they are defensible. So the evidence gathered by this tool has been successfully used to identify opportunities for increasing usage to, and also to identify cost savings where appropriate. And those decisions have been easily communicated to the academic staff who have also been a part of this process. Uh, but not every example of successful evidence-based practice um, has been around our collections. 
Um, I guess this is what we call the Goldilocks experiment. And last year when we refurbished one of our campus libraries, we took the opportunity to get our student voices into the design of the furniture. We were given opportunities for chairs for the students to sit on, and they provided some very low-tech whiteboard feedback on how much they hated every single chair. <laughs> As a result, our library director was able to take that feedback to our project manager and go shopping, and what we have now is furniture that looks like this which is much more fit for purpose. It meets the students' health and well-being needs and it sent a really strong message to the students that the library actually cared about their health and safety and their comfort in our new library space. So very low tech, very simple user experience activity, but it had a significant impact on the ongoing use of our space, the popularity of our space, the welcoming message that our space sends to students. The last example before I move on to our research um, is something that we are, we are trialling this year. It may turn out to not be a success, it's still waiting to be seen. But rather than setting key performance indicators for the library, we already report on a number of external KPIs to um, our equivalent of Connell or Sconnell. Um, but we wanted to identify gaps in our evidence base where we think we might need to communicate with influence to our university executive. And we've called these strategic success indicators. We stole that term from our Office of Research because they were using that phrase as well. And we are looking to identify ways in which we can demonstrate the library's value to our funders to show that we are making an impact to the teaching, the learning, the research and the engagement activities of the university. So one of the challenges we have in Australia is we do not have a government-mandated government um, open access or open scholarship policy. So we are very much behind all of you in that area. So we are trying within our own institution to progress the openness discussion. And one of the ways that we hope to do it is through this strategic success framework to show how we can improve the visibility of research in and I'm stealing lots of ideas from the sessions this morning, um, to increase the visibility of our research through the services that we provide and the opportunities that we can support our researchers. It's certainly a, a key strategic area for our university. We have a very small but growing research profile, and so we are very keen to get involved in that and to, as the university builds its research profile, we hope to engage in that openness discussion and show how that can contribute to that, that profile growing. So I'd like to just move on to um, some research that I shared at the Evidence-Based Practice Library and Information Conference in Glasgow last week and just give you a short overview about some of the other ways that we are thinking in this space. So as I've been working with our coordinator, we had lots of discussions about what is the evidence that shows she is actually making a difference in her job. If we're challenging everyone else to use evidence, where is the evidence that she is making a difference? And so we did look at the literature and what we found is that there was a gap around how libraries as organisations can grow as evidence-based libraries, not just as individuals. 
The literature really only, at the moment, our existing research base only focuses on the individual practitioner experiences. And so we saw an opportunity here to have more of an understanding. So for myself as the Associate Director, this is really useful for me to, to understand this. So uh, we did, as you can see there, 16 semi-structured interviews. We interviewed people from subject librarians right up to university librarians or directors. And then the framework that we've used to um, thematically bring these ideas together is a maturity model. What we found from our research is three particular themes. And these relate to the process, how evidence-based practice is approached within libraries, who was involved, the people, the culture, the uh, staff development in the engagement area, and then in evidence, the what. So the types of evidence, so that whole range, how many different sources or alternatives are looked at, and staff understanding of limitations. So what we found from our 16 interviews is that our interviewees conceptualised an evidence-based library and it seemed to be on a continuum. So we think that maturity model is, a t is an appropriate framework to present this continuum within. This is what our maturity model looks like. We've identified five levels of experience and within maturity models what you see is uh, a growing continuum from least mature to most mature. So I'll just briefly um, go through the five categories. So at tier one, what we see is an experience or where the library collects the data that they have to, either because they always have or because they are required to for external reporting requirements. The data itself might not be fit for purpose in that it might not have any other application that relates to the university strategic alignment. At tier two, what we start to see is that evidence is used to demonstrate busyness. We're doing lots of stuff. <coughs> evidence where it is gathered tends to be generated by systems or already easily accessible. And that evidence is often used to justify decisions that may have already been made. At the emerging stage, we start to see uh, evidence being used within projects. So evidence-based practice is a task that's added on to projects or change initiatives. So the evidence that is collected may have, future, may have limited future application because it's specifically gathered for one activity. At tier four, libraries are starting to experiment more widely and it's seen as a desirable and attainable goal. So evidence-based practice is starting to be used in strategic planning, it's starting to be used as a service improvement tool. And at tier five, we see libraries which have a clear purpose and are generating sophisticated insights from the type of evidence that they are gathering. And I think we've seen examples of of some really high-performing libraries at this conference who are doing this sort of work. So evidence is gathered with a strategic purpose that clearly aligns with the university's goals and it's shared with, with the right audiences to communicate for influence and for advocacy. The staff are engaging in evidence-based practice as part of their role. It's not an extra thing that they do. So we are hoping to continue to develop this maturity model 
to develop some self-assessment tools that can be used by university directors and library leaders to assess the maturity of their library and also to put together a toolkit of resources for libraries who do wish to grow and mature as organisations. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Claire. So we actually are just about at time. It's nearly coffee time. And um, we do have time just for one quick question if anyone would like to Claire, ask Claire anything. And um, I'm sure all our speakers will be around for coffee if any of you have any further questions for them. Okay, so in the interest of trying to keep yes. things in time, thank you so much, Claire. It was really, really fascinating talk. Thank you.